FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 440 of the podcast that goes snicked. Snicked! I'm your host, Jason Snowblind Venable, and it's a flashback of a bonus episode. A little bit of a cheat, um, but we're going to talk about a new, another new X-Men series that started in 1993. So, you know, we had the the kind of shifts in the books, you know, the the blue and the gold team in 92 with, you know, Uncanny splitting into both Uncanny and the eponymous X-Men title. And, you know, X-Force, X-Factor, Scal were all running their pace and, you know, everything looking really good. And um, now, you know, as we're kind of in the height of X-Men popularity, you know, the cartoon's been out now at this point. And, um, you know, it's time to add another book. And kind of in the vein of giant size, uh, X-Men Unlimited is an extra size comic. And, you know, I have good memories of these to an extent. I had the first four and I very well remember number three, which is when Sabretooth comes to the mansion, which, you know, kicks off all kinds of stories uh, in, in the X-Books. Um, you know, I, I, think I, I think I have the first four or five, and then just have read a couple of random issues after that. It goes like almost 50 or, or even maybe a little over 50 issues over the course of the 90s. Um, you know, comes out every few months. It's not a monthly book, but it does come out fairly regularly, I believe. I did not research that. I'm just going by my recollection. <laughs> but anyway, in the summer of 93, X-Men Unlimited number one, first issue collector's item, did come out. And it's interesting because one of the things you notice right off the bat is is a glossier paper. It's the higher paper quality. So it's, it's definitely kind of a prestige type book, you know, it's a, it came with a hefty cover price at the time, uh, 395 in 1993 was, I mean, almost, well, yeah, right around double price, right, because I think, you know, the uh, there were a few books, you know, we talked about this when Al was on with our Secret Defenders, there were a few books that were a hair more expensive, but at this point, most of your books are still running 125 and so this is actually more than double that. Um, we have not gone to the 150, 175 for everything yet, though some titles have done that. Um, but yeah, yeah, so this is a pretty hefty price tag, but you can get lots of pages. I mean, this is a pretty thick book. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not, in, at least in the first, I don't remember if it stays this way, so forgive me for my memory failing, and of course for the issues I haven't read. At least starting off, it's not an anthology book. It is like one big story, um, which is pretty cool that, that they did that. Um, and there's some pinups and stuff too, which is actually kind of why we're talking about it. Because Wolverine's not actually in the story, but he's in three of the pinups. <laughs> so, uh, kind of a cheat uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, through no one's fault, uh, or maybe everyone's fault, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it, um, had to reschedule 
the next flashback episode with the wonderful John Wilson a couple of times. And there's a kind of undercurrent to the plot of that story that this will help feed a little bit. So this is, this is going to fall kind of weird in our timeline. Um, so from a Wolverine perspective, I think it fits real nice. Because like I said, there's going to be uh, kind of an undercurrent to the next three issues of Wolverine that we're going to talk about uh, on, on the next flashback episode, like I said, with John, the wonderful John Wilson. Um, and there's going to be a part of this issue that, that will feed into that, right? That'll make sense that this maybe happens before that. But going by our X-Men coverage, just the X-Men book, uh, right now we have Cyclops in the middle of Alaska uh, going to visit his grandparents and being um, kind of sabotaged or ambushed by Mr. Sinister. And in that story, which obviously this can't go in between those. I don't know what happens before or after. I've, I've, been, look, I've been keeping up with the Wolverine reading order, uh, but as far as Cyclops or the X-Men overall, I don't know where this falls in. I, I know this falls before Uncanny 301, um, because what this kind of does is the story is, is ties into the whole upstart thing from the 90s um, and it introduces a new upstart, actually, that we'll get to. Um, and so that's pretty cool. And then, you know, so, so as far as Cyclops, you know, knowing whether, you know, he's already kind of had some of the, the revelations and story beats from his encounter with Mr. Sinister, and doesn't seem to be troubling him too much, so I'm going to probably say maybe this falls before that. Like, we probably should have talked about this before um, the last couple of issues of X-Men that we did with Georgie. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I anyway, I wasn't actually going to even do it on the podcast. I was just going to read it as I went. And then, but with Wolverine and all the pinups and me needing a quick episode to kind of take out some space. And plus, I mean, it's cool. It's a, it's a new X book that launched, and I want to talk about it in 1993. So that is X-Men, that's my, that's my excuse. X-Men Unlimited number one, survival. Um, so this is also called Follow the Leader. Uh, well, it says survival on the cover. The, the actual issue is called Follow the Leader. And it's an X-Men epic by Scott Lobdell, uh, Chris Boccolo, which, as far as I know, this is super early in his career. I don't know what he did previously to come into X-Men stuff, but I mean, this is definitely before Generation X. So, it's very, very early Boccolo. Um, Eat by Dan Panosian, letters by Chris Eliopoulos, colors by Glennis Oliver, uh, yeah, and then we have you know all the editors and stuff, and the cover is by Bacalo as well. It's a it's a cool cover. We have Professor X in his hover chair, Cyclops without his visor but blasting away, and Storm uh, shooting some lightning, and they're all in a snowstorm, and there's like a triangle around them that's full color. And then outside the triangle. It's like it's, it's very, very faded. It's kind of a cool effect. I mean, it's just kind of a, a, a geometry trick. Um, there's nothing that I know of that, that ties into the story or anything. Just kind of a cool visual. But it looks pretty rad. I will say, um, you can see some of Bacala, like in Professor X's face a little bit. 
uh, and really in, in the spaces in general. But it's much more standard or classic for Bacalo, and the art on the inside is that way as well. So there's a couple of things I think that may be going on. Um, one, like I said, I'm not going to say it's his first work, because I don't know, but it's very, very early in his career. So it could just be he hasn't found his style yet. As, you know, he's, he's playing with it, he's working towards it, but it's not really fully developed, right? Uh, the other thing that I would say can be a very strong possibility is that Panosian's inks, Panosian is a good inker, but he's a very strong inker, right? Um, he, you know, he's one of the guys that actually worked really well with Liefeld, um, as much as, you know, Liefeld is Liefeld, and as much as I, uh, uh, T. Bear, who's the other really good inker on Liefeld, is also T. Bear, and don't want to say much more than that about them at the moment, but, um, Phenosian is, is one of the other inkers that work really well with Liefeld, but, and he, he's done a lot of other inks, and even some pencils as well, and his style has definitely evolved over the years, I kind of like what he's doing currently, visually as well, but, you know, as an inker, um, I kind of, I don't want to throw him, well, I don't know, it's a different era, so I don't want to say stylistically anything about it, but I think, what I'm trying to say is it reminds me a little bit of Terry Austin and the fact that Terry Austin made writer or made artists sometimes look a certain way because he was such a strong inker. I think one of the most kind of great examples, because Byrne and Austin were a dream team. Like John Byrne and Terry Austin, when they were doing the X-Men run, was fantastic. But we look at other guys that Austin inked at that time, uh, and particularly some of the, the detective comic stuff he did with Marshall Rogers, right? I, I don't think if you look at Byrne and Rogers independently, I'm not saying they're completely different, and there's no way they're ever alike, but they're not super similar. But if you look at when they're both inked by Austin, you see things that look very similar. <laughs> and, and in a good way. I love it. I mean, they, they both look fantastic when they're inked by Austin. But you can definitely tell that Austin is shaping the art. And I think Panosian in the 90s was kind of the same way. Um, he helped shape the art for, for good or bad. I think most of the times it's pretty good. Um, but I'm just wondering if in this case it made Vicalo look a little more uniform to classic 90s styles and maybe he would have on his own you know or especially when he starts getting inked by like Townsend and you can get like the real crazy stuff there's not a whole lot of crazy here and there's a little bit there's flashes of it especially like with the nature like stuff in the snow we'll get to and talk about um, as we work through this but um but overall uh his, his stuff looks more just kind of what you think of as 90s x-men art I, I mean there's even you know, it's funny, because I say that, like, his face is, you can tell it's Bacalo, but it's also a little bit of Andy Kubert looking in there, and I think that's just Panosian's inks, you know, kind of refining it to a more 90s aesthetic. And again, that's not a complaint, it's just an observation. So, anyway, that's the cover. Um, we open up with Cyclops in the snow, grimacing, uh, eyes ablaze with no visor, and he's yelling for the professor. And so what we find out is that Professor Storm and Cyclops were flying a mission to the Blackbird. They had gone to the Savage Land, 
and uh, well, you know, we'll get there in a second. So right now there's a wreckage in Antarctica with the Blackbird, and Cyclops. It's actually a really cool double-page spread. First of all, it looks great. But second of all, Lobdell, for whatever kind of jerkwad he may have turned out to be, uh, he can be a pretty solid writer. And he really nails some good characterization of Cyclops here. Because um, basically Cyclops is, is in the snow, and he knows every, like they crash, and he wants to find his, you know, his friends, family, teammates, and but he can't he can't find his visor and he's afraid to open his eyes and look for them because it's possible that they're literally like right in front of him right in the wreckage like he can't tell us what he's trying to kind of fill around a little bit in the immediate area but of course everything's starting to get covered with snow and so there's this really like tangible fear that if he opens his eyes to try to find storm or xavier that he may accidentally blast them in the effort <laughs> just by looking and it's a really between the mood and the art and the dialogue and the internal narration it's a really powerful double page spread to open up this issue um but probably some of the best pages of of the issue i think just from a creative combination um but eventually um he kind of does reverse telepathy which is an interesting idea that lobdell does here um so he kind of says, I'm not a telepath, but Xavier is one of the leading telepaths in the world and or in the universe. If he's in trauma, his thoughts should be so open to mind that if I reach out to him hard enough, he's going to pick me up, even though I have no mental powers. And of course it works. Um, for Xavier does hear him reaching out in anguish, and so they're able to kind of make a telepathic link there. And, and Cyclops is even able to see through the professor's eyes so he can keep his eyes closed and keep his blast from going. I like the idea, so I know people sometimes complain about the Superman laser eyes, that, you know, kind of the laser trail. Uh, I don't know who did it first. I don't, don't claim to know that. But it's to good effect here because uh, Bacalo draws Cyclops as kind of, his eyes are shut. But through his eyelids, there's kind of this dissipating energy just waiting to get out. And just kind of coming out of his eyes and just kind of kind of smoking out. Uh, it's a really cool effect, and it does it for the first several pages, and it's, it looks great. It's awesome. Um, so he's walking around with that. He does find, you know, eventually something to cover his eyes with. But he, he's able to find the professor, and then they're able to find Storm. And Storm talks about how her connection with the Earth, she feels pain. And so it's not just like a natural element. Like something something happened to knock them out of the sky, and it hurt the planet as well. And that is when we meet Miss Blaze, and she walks out of the snow into a research center. And she has electromagnetic powers, and she is a new upstart. And she's talking to the Games Master and says, you know, hey... I'm trying to kill the, the leaders in the X-Men, the trifecta, the three leaders. We have the founder, Professor X, and we have the leaders of both the Blue and Gold team and Storm and Cyclops, and I'm taking them out to get ahead in this upstart competition. And the game's master, unfortunately, confirms for her that while she was successful in destroying the Blackbird and knocking them out of the sky, that all four of them are alive. And Blaze is like, four? 
what are you talking about? There's only three. And he's like, no, there's four mutants out there in the snow. And so there's this mystery, right, introduced at the beginning. Um, and so we get a cool visualization. I was talking about how there are definite splashes of contemporary Bakulo. Um There's a scene where he kind of shows Blaze's power and her uh, blast to the lab because basically she decides that the research assistance is their fault that the X-Men are not dead and so she blows up the base. <laughs> so she's got quite a temper. Blaze is hot-headed. Um, so let's talk about her design a little bit. Very 90s. Um, she has like a red, almost metallic-looking bodysuit with yellow boots, yellow armored sleeves. We have the, the lines and the shorthand for, for armor or cybernetics in the 90s. Um, orange gloves, a yellow belt, yellow bands around her thighs. Um, she has a yellow like turtleneck vest underneath her suit, but it op her suit opens in a V and has like big collars. Um, the, the metal metallic suit makes a collar and then there's like a leather collar that comes out with that as well. And then she has kind of a headdress with a visor that she takes on and off. And then she has short, either white or very blonde hair. Um, you know, honestly, and not to, I mean, I'm not blaming Bacala. There's a whole lot of 90s designs, especially on these kind of one-off villains that are very, very derivative. And this character can easily be a character in Cyberforce. <laughs> I mean, just, it can, it, she can be right on the pages of Cyberforce. Um, and it would totally make sense. Anyway, uh, she has a temper and she blows up the base. And the Games Master is out in the snow with her in his astral form. Uh, we find out for sure, I think this has been hinted at, but this is revealed for sure that he's an omnipath, which means he can basically choose to hear every thought around the world. Um, or, or is constantly filtering every thought and emotion from the whole world. And he talks about how this game with the upstarts is his distraction that keeps him from going insane. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and he gives, you know, Blaze a clue of kind of where they might be and sends her off. Then we can go back to the base and we find out that Cyclops, or not the base, the mansion, and Cyclops, not Cyclops, <laughs> sorry guys, Psylocke and Bishop have lost contact with the Blackbird and then try and decide what to do. Then our X-Men are trying to decide what to do, and for the sake of the reader, why Cyclops ties this, like, big thing around his eyes uh, so that he can, you know, keep his eyes in check, Professor X is like, let's mentally go over the events that led to this, <laughs> which is really, really just a way to do the recap. And so they were in the Savage Land visiting Kazar and Shanna and their newborn babe, and... I guess this is the first and maybe the last time this ever comes up. When they talk about how they need vibranium to operate the systems on the Blackbird, especially like the cloaking. I don't really know how that works because lots of planes and things in the Marvel Universe cloak without vibranium, but whatever. I think it's an excuse for them to be down there. Lobdell is like, how can I get them to the Savage Land? Oh, sure, they need vibranium. They don't go to Wakanda, they go to the Savage Land, which is fine. Because that's actually probably, I think, where it started. I'm trying to remember exactly. Because there's like two forms of vibranium in the Marvel Universe. I think it's a retcon. I think it was originally introduced in Kazar stories. And the Black Panther took, also had it. 
No. It was originally introduced in Black Panther with Kirby and Louis. But then it was also used in this Savage Land story in Kazar, and they kind of retconned them to be like variations of the same metal um, in the 70s. And so anyway, they're, they're getting some Savage Land vibranium for the Blackbird, and that's why they were there, and then they were flying home is when they got attacked, and there's a full-page splash of the, the strike going through the Blackbird, and that also was very uh, Bacalo-looking classically. Um, and we see, you know, them struggling to land the plane. Cyclops does this thing where he shoots off the back of the plane. Because Storm had gone outside to try to help land it, but she was struggling. With the blizzard and everything else, it was already naturally occurring. She was having trouble land, you know, controlling the plane. So Scott's like, well, if we make the plane lighter and smaller, it should be easier for her. So he literally blasts the whole back of the plane off. And Storm's like, yeah, I get it. And they work in tandem. Unfortunately... That's when the wind of the blizzard and the, the descending plane and all the force knocks his visor off, and he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> and then Storm is able to help them land, but it is still a crash. And, and Professor X is like, okay, well, that's, that's how we got here. What are we going to do? And then Storm, in another page that looks very Vicalo, um kind of talks about how she can see the electromagnetic spectrum or the energies of the planet and they're all out of whack. Like, like something's wrong and there's like a rift. And we find out, of course, that is Blaze's power. But she lets off like this big lightning storm. And it's cool because when they're showing the waves, there's like a rainbow of colors and Bacala just goes nuts. And the colors, t- all over, goes nuts with them. And it's great. Looks very similar to some of the stuff she's coloring for Alan Davis concurrently in Excalibur, which is beautiful. Um, and this is no exception, right? So it's really great, and I'll probably tweet it. Uh, so look for that when you get the episode thread. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it's really great looking, and the, the page of her having this kind of electrical lightning outburst also looks fantastic. Um, yeah, but then, um, you know, Cyclops goes and, <laughs> and he blasts the snow, and Professor X is like, huh? And and Storm, like, falls out of the sky after this big outburst. And Cyclops is like, I was giving her somewhere soft to land. And Professor S is like, ah, oh, that's why you two are the leaders. Ah! <laughs> it's just kind of a funny little exchange. But she does land, and she's okay. She's hurt, but she's okay. And then the, Lob Joe goes into this weird thing about how Storm's body temperature is the opposite of what she's doing. So, like, if she's making stuff really cold, she gets a fever. Or if she's trying to make stuff really hot with her elemental powers, it drops her body temperature. And if she does too much of either, it can be dangerous for her. So she goes into, like, this fever coma thing. And, of course, Scott brings her into the plane. They're trying to take shelter as much as they can. And what's left of the blackbird. Um, and Xavier... I always thought this middle part and they needed extra pages because <laughs> the whole body temperature thing and then Xavier has to go in her mind and like artificially lower her fever because he can do that I guess um, so he pulls her fever down but she's still getting rest and you know then there's a lot of kind of talking um, and Professor finds like a random piece of ruby quartz so they punch out a hole and Cyclops' eye covering and put it in there so he can at least partially use his, his powers. Um, the Bishop and Psylocke decide to take another Blackbird to find their teammates. Um, and that is essentially 
when Professor X leaves. So he gets on, somehow gets on inside some kind of like ATV vehicle and goes out into the blizzard, but it fails on him. So then, of course, you know, at this point he's, after Executioner's song, he temporarily can walk, but that has reverted. Remember, we had that very touching episode with Jubilee and the rollerblades and all that. Um, so after his ATV dies, he, he's going to find the Citadel. He sensed a presence out in the snow. And he wondered if maybe it was the attacker, but um, he finds this Arctic Citadel, and his vehicle dies, and he literally just crawls with his arms through the snow towards the Citadel and then passes out. Now, Cyclops and Storm realize he's gone, and they go out to find him, and that's when they run into Miss Blaze, who talks about her powers, and, and they fight, and she's kind of whooping them, right? She's, she's going to town. But then it turns out that Professor X cast a mirage. So she just beat up like a telepathic illusion of the X-Men. And she's like, no! And then Professor X like shuts her power down. And Cyclops blasts her and Storm freezes her in an ice wall. And Professor X says, now as we planned! And so they like combine their powers and this kind of Voltron like Professor X shoots psychic energy and Storm shoots lightning and Scott shoots an optic blast and but all it does is really free her from the ice prison that they made and um, she talks about how Jesus she's just going to blow everything up and she starts to but then what happens here I kind of got lost a little bit in this this portion where Bishop and Psylocke show up. So she's about to like just blow up everybody, and even if it takes herself. But somehow the X Men get in like the Blackbird escape pod, and somehow get away. And then Bishop and Psylocke find them. And I think the lady like Blaze literally. Oh, no, okay, so she's going to leave. She finds some way to teleport out, and that's what she does. And sorry, sorry, that, that scene got a little confusing, because it looks like she's going to blow up. And I don't remember her having teleportation powers. They don't talk about it, but she just kind of leaves. She's kind of like, I'm out of here, guys. You beat me, and I'll catch you later. And then she's gone, and, then, and that's when uh, Cyclops carries the Professor and Storm, and they go into... The, uh, the escape pod and kind of ride these electromagnetic waves until Bishop and Psylocke find them and they, they suck them up in the tractor beam and then um, you know have a conversation about kind of what's going on um, and then talk about how there was this other person out there and he doesn't know who it was he doesn't know who helped him he woke up you know, he was crawling towards the Citadel, and he passed out, and he woke up inside this nice room with lots of kind of electronic stuff, and then he sensed another presence, and as they leave, we see a shadow caped figure in the snow. And of course, I mean, they're, they're playing it like a mystery. It's obviously Magneto. Um, he's supposed to be dead at this point in time. But we've had kind of hints from recent Acolyte stories in Uncanny, which Lobdell is also writing, that he, they at least might believe he's alive still. And the professor has his suspicions, but he hasn't really had a reason to suspect until now. And I think this will play into the mission that we go on 
in the Savage Land and Wolverine uh, uh, 69 through 71, which we're about to talk about. Um, so this gives a little more kind of like why would he actually send personnel to try to investigate whether Magneto is alive or not. I think this issue really helps give him a motivation to actually like do that. So that'll be cool and something we'll probably definitely talk about when, when Mr. Wilson is on. Um, Cause the acolyte stuff is very kind of circumstantial like they believe it and they have the helmet and maybe an empty suit of armor and like well maybe he got away you know from that the end of the the first arc of x-men um but even then like i'm it's not entirely clear how much the x-men really caught on to that versus what the acolytes just believe and them saying that we think he's alive and that, that's probably enough to merit investigation i mean like you know is their arch enemy the most powerful guy they know, so, I mean, yeah, they probably would want even suspicion, at least investigate it and check it out. So that's probably enough, but this gives it that extra, like, oof, like he experienced something in the blizzard in Antarctica, where we know that Menino has had a base of operations before from the Savage Man, right? So it's in his neck of the woods where he's done stuff, so if he was kind of re- alive and maybe recuperating, why would he not go down there, right? It's secluded, isolated, no one's really look, knows to look for him, so he has a chance to kind of heal and, and make plans or whatever he wants to do there. So, that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, yeah. So, then we have some really cool pinups. We have a pinup by uh, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, and this has Wolverine, Jean Grey, and Gambit on a cliff. Uh, Gambit and Jean Grey are behind Wolverine, who is jumping towards the reader with his claws crossed in an X, his arms extended. It's pretty cool. Then the, almost like a digital background with the purple sky and blue lightning. That's fine. It's kind of like a heavy metal album. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's a pretty great pinup. And then we have, uh, Carrie Gamble and, is it Chris Ivy, the inker? Um, doing a Cyclops pinup. And it looks like it's out of this story. Like his uniform's all busted up, his visor's missing, he's yelling in the snow and some wreckage. Um, so it could have very easily been from this story. Then we have a Mark Bagley and Terry Austin. There, speaking of Terry Austin. Um, a Wolverine and Colossus pinup. It looks pretty great. And they're just kind of in battle poses. Not quite, it looks like the Wolverine is crouching behind Colossus. He could be jumping up towards a fastball special. In my headcanon, he is. Um, then we have a Brian Stelfreeze pinup of Storm, Rogue, and Psylocke. Um, it's early Stelfreeze before he becomes awesome, I would say. <laughs> but maybe that's just me. Then we have a really cool uh, Greg Capullo cable pinup. Um, and it's cable kneeling, he's all torn. I really like Capullo's cable. Um, and he's got a big gun, and his stuff's all torn up, and then he's kneeling on a pile of giant shells, like ammo shells, and there's a Strife helmet next to him. It's pretty awesome. Then lastly, we have a, a sideways pinup by Casada and Palmiotti again, and this is Wolverine in the front, yelling primally. He looks gnarly. And then flanking him are Colossus and Bishop. Then Archangel's behind him in the air, and the storm is flying above Bishop, and Iceman is doing an ice slide above Colossus. It's pretty great. It's a great pinup. The posters or whatever in this book are fantastic. And the story and the art in the story is pretty good. Um, you know, the the new upstart, Miss Blaze, is kind of... You know what they didn't really play into that I kind of wish they would have? 
is we have this new character, and I like that she's an upstart, right? And she has these electromagnetic powers, and she's doing stuff on the spectrum, right? In Antarctica, I think they maybe could have played in the mystery a little more by not revealing her right off, and maybe the X-Men thought, oh, did we get attacked by Magneto? And it turns out, no, it's just this Miss Blaze upstart person, which they don't know about the upstart ship, but we as the readers do. Um... So that maybe could have been something they could have done that would have made it a little bit cooler or a little more interesting or played into that mystery of Magneto a little more. But I think he was trying to save it for the last page, but it, it was a little telegraphed. So, like I said, the art is really good in places, and in some places it's a little tame. So, I'm still going to give this... Oh, gosh. I'm going to give it a very solid four out of six claws. I don't think it's quite to the five level just because the bad guy's not that strong. And the upstart thing, I remember being really cool. I'm not enjoying it as much this time around. <laughs> but, you know, there's other things that are cool. And like I said, it opened up so strongly with the inner turmoil of Cyclops. And, I don't know, maybe you could use a little more of that than just kind of action. But, um, and there is definitely some filler in the middle. You know, filling out the pages, trying to get the page count. But, yeah, I mean, all in all, a pretty good premiere of a new X-Men series. Um, now, I, I say it wasn't an anthology and that it didn't have multiple stories. It will definitely be an anthology. It is not a continued story. It's different pieces of story that tie into what's going on in the X-Universe around it. So it's not like one leads into two, leads into three. It's def so it is an anthology in that perspective. But not in that, not like Marvel Comics Presents where it's just a bunch of randoms stories. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm probably just saying that for my own benefit. But um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's going to do it. So the pinups were great. They all, not all, three of them had Wolverine in them and they were all fantastic. Um, and the, the comic was pretty good. Definitely worth reading and interesting to see how it carries forward, not only into Wolverine like we talked about, but the X-Men books at large. So there you go. That's X-Men Unlimited number one. All right, well, like I said, the next flashback, we'll have John Wilson, and we'll talk about Wolverine going to the Savage Land um, to investigate whether Magneto may or may not be alive. Um, and that'll be really fun to talk about with Mr. Wilson. And then um, also, coming up, we have the Excaliburos, Georgie and Dan, coming back to talk about the launch of two new X-Books and then some other you know, other issues as well. But we'll have Way of X and X-Core included in our next batch, both number ones. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit about the end of X-Factor coming up. Maybe? I don't know. We might. And then, a little bit after that, have a pretty big surprise for you long-time Flashback fans. Hopefully that you will really enjoy. So, all of that is coming down the pike. And I won't say coming down the pipe because at one point... Uh, the aforementioned John Wilson corrected me on that. I want to say the right thing, especially since he's about to come back on. Um, but yeah, anyway, this is a, a bonus episode, and that's that. So every guys, every, every guys, what am I doing? Everyone, guys, stay safe out there. Stay well, stay smart. Um, be kind and, you know, love each other. And I guess that's it. So until next time, oh, no, it's not it. Plugs, my own plugs. Um... 
For the podcast of Go Snick, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snickcast. Show notes and stuff are snickcast.podbean.com. And that is it. So until next time, hogs and snicks, everyone. Bye-bye. And snacked.